The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are discussing a Miss Marvel short story. The Tuesday Night Club. The very first Miss Marvel short story published not in the sketch, but in in the Royal Magazine in December of 1927. So this is three years prior to the appearance of Miss Marple in her first full-length novel, which we already discussed, The Murder at the Vicarage. And not something that I knew that she appeared in short stories before appearing in that first novel. So I thought that was a little interesting. Shall we get into what is going on here? Because we actually, normally we just start with the victim, but first, due to the framing here of these stories, we need to do some little splaining. Yeah, this is also going to impact all of the next (laughs) Miss Marple short stories. So, The Tuesday Night Club, it is not actually about the case. That is a name that describes the group that gathers in Miss Marple's living room, presumably in St. Mary Mead, although it's actually not named in the short story. Yeah. Um, But she's playing host, essentially, to her nephew and an array of guests. And essentially, as a parlor game, they decide that each of the five, because they initially leave out Miss Marple. Because they're all kind of jerks. They're all jerks. Or at least a few of them are are more jerkish than others, but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, so six people each will tell a mystery story that he or she knows the ending of. They'll get all the clues, and then it will go to the room to see who comes up with the correct solution. Because they originally have convened on a Tuesday night, they're not very original. That is what (laughs) (laughs) they name themselves, and the guests are as follows. We'll start with uh, Miss Jane Marple herself, who here is snowy-haired, she's knitting, she wears like a lot of black lace, and she tends to interrupt other people's stories to give asides about village life. Yeah, and I actually would like to pause for a second because it's it's interesting to me that the description of Jane Marple 
in this first story is very different from the description of Miss Marple that we get in future stories and novels. She sort of Peter panned a little bit in a similar way to how Poirot did because Christie made the same mistake twice. She made her detective protagonist way too old. She already regretted making Poirot retired in the Mysterious Affair at Styles and being clearly in his 60s. And it's pretty obvious in this story that Jane Marple is really old. And I would just like to pull out the way that she is described because this is not how I or I think most readers of the Miss Marple canon picture Miss Marple. But this is what she writes. Miss Marple wore a black brocade dress, very much pinched in round the waist. Meslin lace was arranged in a cascade down the front of the bodice. She had on black lace mittens and a black lace cap surmounted the piled-up masses of her snowy hair. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I think she gets more vigorous and tweedy in future stories. This seems like a really old lady that barely can support herself who's drowning right. in lace. I know I'm, I'm probably influenced somewhat by the Joan Hickson depiction from the 80s, but even so... Yeah, in Murder at the Vicarage, she is a very avid gardener, right? Yeah, this does not seem like an avid gardener. The reason why I say Peter Panning is that it's like her hair goes from white to gray, and she gets a little bit younger and more spry and sprightly in the way that she's depicted, probably because Christy realized, oh, I actually hit on something really good here, but now I need her to do stuff. Right, she can't just sit in a uh, grandfather chair at the end of a room. Exactly, as she totally does in these stories. Correct. um, That's why, by the way, I tweeted out and Instagrammed out a little picture that was at the head of the Royal Magazine story when it was published, when when this first story was published, and it's very much in keeping with that description, and yeah, to me, it just totally doesn't look like Miss Marple. Anyway, next we have Mr. Raymond West, big character here in the Marple verse, Jane's nephew. And I'm going to call him a blowhard. I, I think that describes that was, uh, not who the, he is. Not the word that I chose to use. Uh, Kemper, <laughs> Kemper's being generous, but... Um, Catherine, perhaps in, in some notes, had some more choice descriptions words for him. Of him. But. Um, Chris, Christy calls him a self... calls him self-consciously debonair. Yeah, he's a novelist, which is funny because she is one of his more loathsome and laughable characters. And of course, he's horrible and he's created by a novelist. So, well, the thing is, she, I think, has disdain for literary snobs because I'm sure they even at this early-ish point in her career, had had showed her disdain. And even though it's never stated outright, his books are trash. He's a terrible, overrated novelist. We just know that. I'm sorry, that's fact. I believe we're actually told that he is quite successful and well-renowned and respected, though, aren't we? Yeah, but he's trash. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you know the SNL character, Cecily Strong, the girl you wouldn't want to start a conversation with at a party? Here's a thought, Michael. Maybe try being woke for a change, okay? Because um, Kevin can wait, but Syrian referees can't, okay? A newsflash, Michael, 40% of children are just their legs. Right. He is definitely the literary type that you do not want to start a conversation with at a party because I have had right. conversations with Mr. Raymond West. I have been to those parties. I've had that conversation with him. And man, that is the guy you just want to get away from. 
Yeah. He's like that Cecily Strong character plus lots of mansplaining. Oh, so much mansplaining. It's a short story. You would think how much mansplaining could you do in a short story? You You would would be be surprised. surprised. He is a friend, Miss Joyce Lampriere. She is an artiste. We get very little description of her, but because of her close-cropped dark hair, I think there's a little bit of assumption that she is, like, some artistic, flappery friend of Raymond West. Right, right. She's also a little obnoxious. She's actually the one who originally leaves out Miss Marple out of the Tuesday Night Club. You know what? That is actually a really good point. Forget her. She's she's trash, too. (laughs) (laughs) They're just garbage people. And everybody should be aware of this because they are going to be the framing narrative of every one of these upcoming stories. And kind of their horribleness is the framing. Yes. No, I mean, repeatedly, repeatedly, because these all have essentially the same structure to them. So they really do. I'm sorry that I'm I'm dwelling so much on Miss Marple and Raymond West before we've even gotten into our mystery. But Before we get to the mystery of this story, we get, I think, maybe one of the best takedowns of Raymond West's novels in the series, because that also the issue of him being a famous novelist and Miss Marple clearly not liking his books comes up repeatedly in the future. (laughs) And early on, we get here. Miss Marple talking to her nephew. I know, dear, said Miss Marple, that your books are very clever. But do you think that people are really so unpleasant as you make them out to be? And then Raymond responds, my dear aunt, keep your beliefs. Heaven forbid that I should in any way shatter them. Because he's, again, awful and patronizing. I mean, but the thing about it is, right, that she's being sarcastic at some level. Because, of course, she knows that people are probably worse than he understands them to be. Well, that's why the best part is her response to him. I mean, said Miss Marple, puckering her brow a little as she counted the stitches in her knitting, that so many people seem to me not to be either bad or good, but simply, you know, very silly. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like such a good burn for... Somebody pretentious. For someone who's pretentious. We've talked a little bit about how Agatha Christie would not be a fan of the male anti-hero in the model of Tony Soprano. And some of the silliness that comes from idolizing those characters, Walter White is another one from Breaking Bad, is, well, people aren't good. They're bad. So bad is good and bad is real and bad is just the way that it has to be. And Miss Marple, because she is a woman of the world, that world being St. Mary Mead, knows, no, 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 that's just as stupid as the people who think that only goodness should be focused on. It's both and most people are just kind of dumb. It's fine. He doesn't even get it, but we already know that Miss Marple gets it. She's on a higher plane, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) One of the more respectable characters, I think, in this is Sir Henry Clithering. He is a well-groomed man of the world, and as we find out, he is conveniently the former commissioner of Scotland Yard. (laughs) Very convenient evening guest to have over. Definitely helps for a lot of on-the-spot verification of information. (laughs) (laughs) Our next guest here is Dr. Pender, who is an elderly clergyman of the parish. And then we have Mr. Petherick, who is a solicitor and a quote-unquote dried-up little man with eyeglasses, which he looked over and not through, which (laughs) is a biting description, if ever there were. He also mentions repeatedly that he's a lawyer, and he tries to lawyer every explanation. He's a little bit of the Star Jones of the group in that way. Yes, I am the (laughs) view. Now, I am a lawyer. 
And what this means is that there were 50 planes, and now there are 100 planes. And that's almost twice as many planes. I know. Anyway, <laughs> let's get to our victim, good God. So the first story is told, actually, from the point of view of Sir Henry Clothering. He tells the first tale since... Understandably yeah, so. He's got, he's got a lot of them. So let's talk about our victim in the Tuesday Night Club. So our victim is uh, Mrs. Jones. She's, quote-unquote, rather commonplace. She's 45 years old. She dies of food poisoning from Tin the Lobster. Uh, which, if anybody remembers from <laughs> Poirot's key advice, be really wary of canned seafood. Villagers basically end up spreading so many rumors that she was murdered that they exhume her body, and then it turns out that she actually died of arsenic poisoning. So let's talk about her suspects. First suspect is, surprise, surprise, the husband, Mr. Jones, a traveling salesman for a pharmaceuticals company. He's good looking, he's about 50. And he had been staying in Birmingham until he headed back home just in time for that dastardly dinner of tinned fish, where he, too, fell terribly ill. Then we have Miss Clark. She is 60 years old. She is, quote-unquote, stout and cheery. Great. Uh, And she served (laughs) as Mrs. Jones' companion, and she also gets tinned lobster poisoning. Then we have the doctor of the village who treats the three diners for poisoning, But he requires extra relief for Mrs. Jones. She's by far the sickest of them. So what he does is he sends for additional drugs to his daughter. So the doctor's daughter. Excitingly, she does not have a name. (laughs) So daughter, uh, she's been seen in the village, though, being a wee bit too friendly with Mr. Jones. We know that potentially she helps her father with those additional drugs. So, you know, she is possibly suspicious. She had the she had the means and potentially the motive. Mm-hmm. Did she have the opportunity? We will find mm-hmm. out. <laughs> Final suspect, Miss Gladys Lynch. There's a name. That is the chambermaid who serves the doomed diners their fateful meal and who is terribly upset and insistent that the lobster was in perfectly good condition. No bulging cans in her I kitchen. I know, no bulging cans. Although, how good of condition could tinned lobster actually be? Often in these Christie stories, when dinners are described, I, for some reason, find them really enticing because they're usually just really simple and it's just, you know, bread and cheese and chicken or whatever. But this meal sounds disgusting, I, I, I have mean, to say. An it's... evening meal of tinned lobster, salad, <laughs> trifle, and bread and cheese. That's, that's a lot. Okay, everybody, it's trifle time. So, now, Rach, this is a traditional English trifle, isn't it? It sure is. All right, Monica, I want you to have the first taste. Really? <laughs> oh, wait, wait, you only got whipped cream in there. You got to take a bite with all the layers. Okay. It's good. Really not good. It's so good that I feel really selfish about being the only one who's eating it. I think we should have everyone taste how good it is. Especially Ross. It tastes like feet. 
I like it. So after that gross <laughs> meal was served with Mr. and Mrs. Jones and Miss Clark, they eat it. And then after supper, Mr. Jones goes downstairs to the kitchen to ask for a bowl of corn flour for his wife since she's not feeling well. But his wife can't even bring herself to eat that. She's feeling so bad. So she instead gives it to Miss Clark, who mentions that she's really hungry. And that is because she is, quote unquote, banting, which is the first of two antiquated phrases that we will come across in this short story. And I did not know that banting meant dieting. But now I do. I mean, we can gather it from context, but I had never heard that word before. I had never heard that word before either, and I suspect I may not hear it after. But uh, Miss Clark (laughs) has been banting, and she essentially does a little bit of a Chris Farley across the table reaching for a french fry with that corn flour. God, I love these fries. (laughs) If you love them so much, why don't you marry them? (laughs) Can I have some? Um, sure, Cindy, go ahead. Oh, God, these are good. Uh, Cindy, can you leave some for us? (laughs) I thought you were, um, trying to lose weight. Lay off me, I'm starving! She downs that bowl of corn flour. Oh, yeah, finishes Mm. it off. Good good to the last corn flour he dropped. You know, I looked up what corn flour was. Yeah. And, you know, I couldn't find a recipe for it. I mean, I assume it's like gruel. If I had to guess, I think it's a a mixture of corn flour and buttermilk, which is revolting, FYI. Apparently, though, this was a very well done corn flour, and it was surprisingly not lumpy. Mm, She's just... Basically, she doesn't want the corn flour to go to waste <laughs> because it's so not lumpy and it's so rare to see a not lumpy corn right, flour. Just, a, just an exquisite bowl of corn flour. Silky, one might say. <laughs> <laughs> so by midnight, all three, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, and Miss Clark, become woefully ill. The town doctor is called to the house. And we mentioned Mrs. Jones is the one who's by far the most ill. She requires this additional medicine, which are, in fact, additional opium tablets. But she dies. But in the aftermath of this, we find out that a chambermaid in the hotel in Birmingham where Mr. Jones had been staying right before he came home recalled seeing the imprint of writing on a notepad, which she then held up in a mirror because apparently she was bored. And it read, quote, entirely dependent on my wife, dot, dot, dot. When she is dead, I will, dot, 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 hundreds and thousands. So she proceeds to spread this rumor just rampantly to all of her relatives in random towns, and they basically play a game of telephone with it, and then they all start to literally telephone Scotland Yard, saying that actually they think Mrs. Jones didn't have food poisoning, but that she was otherwise poisoned by her husband. And that's why the body is exhumed and they find out that, yes, in fact, she did die of arsenic poison. And we should note that the husband did inherit money from his wife. It was the sum of 8,000 pounds, which is quite a significant sum. So that's where we are. And then let's talk about the world as it actually is and how we get there. So Miss Lynch was correct. It was not, in fact, the lobster. Not in her kitchen. Nope. Clue number one is Miss Clark is on a diet. So we know that she ate the corn flour and that she was starving by the time she ate the corn flour. But you would think, well, they just ate this disgusting seeming dinner. How could she be that hungry? 
Well, the deduction here is that if she's that hungry, that she's going to cheat with a bowl of gruel that she basically licks clean. Lay off me, I'm starving! Maybe she didn't actually eat all of the dinner. Right. What we also know from this is that the poison could not have been in the corn flour because she chows down on that. So the assumption here that we can make is that if, in fact, Mrs. Jones was poisoned... It still had to have been something at the dinner. So either she had to have eaten way more of something than everybody else ate, or she was eating something that nobody else ate. And what I love about this clue is it's the typical Christie misdirection. We're told that Miss Clark ate something, and what's important is not the something that she ate extra, the corn flour. It's what that actually then says about what she didn't eat earlier. Right. That if she ate the corn flour, then she really was serious about this whole banting thing. And what is, of course, the one course the dieters more than any other course, tend to skip or severely minimize when they are eating their supper dessert. Clue number two. The imprint of the writing in the hotel makes it look like Mr. Jones wants to off his wife for hundreds and thousands of dollars. He makes mention of hundreds and thousands. But let's keep in mind, he only inherits 8,000 pounds, which is still a significant amount of money, totally worth murdering. In the Sitterford mystery, it was only 5,000 pounds. That was a sufficient motive for murder. So the deduction here, though, is that the hundreds and thousands must not refer to money. Well, or it refers to money that's not his inheritance. If he, in fact, did it, it can't refer to the money that was the motive for the crime because he did not inherit hundreds and thousands from his wife. But what are these hundreds and thousands? And here is where we get to our second antiquated term. Yeah. So hundreds and thousands are another phrase for what we in the U.S. call either sprinkles or jimmies. I know that there's somewhere in the U.S. that people actually call them jimmies. I think that that's right, but I've never in my life called them that. I wouldn't either. I think that's embarrassing. Well, or, I mean, or, no, or non-parels. Or non-parels. Sprinkles, are, it's, they're one of those things that are just kind of odd, so they have different names because I think people are always a little bit at a loss as to what to call them. So I'm honestly not sure if people still call sprinkles hundreds and thousands anywhere. If you, dear listener, still use the term hundreds and thousands, we would like to hear from you. Indeed. Although we're both pretty convinced that it may be an out-of-use term. We're fairly convinced of that. But if you should be, this is like finding a lost language that we (laughs) thought (laughs) was extinct. And then in the the rainforests of some forgotten land. They still call them hundreds and thousands. (laughs) We we come upon these lost peoples, hundreds and thousands. We just hear it murmured within the mists. That they lust for when they're banding. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I just want those hundreds of thousands, but I'm banting. It's actually like a weird brigadoon that's just stuck in like 1910. You can only enter the land of hundreds of thousands of in banting every hundred years. Yeah. It, <laughs> Maybe it, there'll it. be an opening sometime soon and we can go in and get lost. Exciting. <laughs> or perhaps we'll get found. Oh, God. <laughs> just embarrassing now. Then one day I saw a maid held out her hand and I stayed and stayed and now across the green I'll go home with Bonnie Jean Moving on. Clue number three. Miss Lynch 
was almost hysterically insistent that it wasn't the lobster. Obviously, if you're cooking it, you would not want to be the one responsible for food poisoning. But, I mean, she just draws all of this attention to the lobster. And, I mean, the deduction here is the lady doth protest a bit too much. Well, she kind of doesn't protest too much because she's right. Well, right? although I'm going to be honest, it's possible something was wrong with the lobster because it did seem like something was maybe <laughs> off with the lobster too. Because I, I everybody know. else actually does get food poisoning. It's <laughs> true. I think it's hard to read in a 15-page short story about tinned lobster over and over again without inferring something gross. <laughs> honestly. I mean, I haven't eaten dinner tonight, and I will say that I also have no interest in eating it after saying the phrase tinned lobster that many times. (laughs) So, okay, what's the resolution here? With the clues in place, the Tuesday Night Club's job now is to guess. That's the entire point of this little parlor game. Raymond West, in particular, is living up to his jerkdom. And he's just, like, super insistent that it must be the doctor's daughter. He's also just repeatedly dismissive of Miss Marple's sort of attempts to comment. This seems to be a pattern in these stories that the little closing section in which they all guess, everyone's wrong, no one knows what they're talking about, except sort of Sir Henry Clithering, because he usually has insider knowledge, not because he's deduced anything himself. And Miss Marple, of course, knows everything because she's Miss Marple. And Raymond West is just hateful and idiotic. Correct. About not knowing anything and putting down his poor aunt. I feel like Joyce starts off really badly with forgetting Miss Marple, but she kind of has an arc throughout the series. We'll, we'll track this over time, perhaps, where she gets a little less dismissive of Miss Marple. She, she, her respect for her grows. I mean, I suppose when everybody else is repeatedly wrong and the old lady knitting <laughs> in the corner is the only one who ever gets the answer right. Well, if you're Raymond West, you still discount He's it. He's a man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I will note that Joyce does once again ask Sir Henry for the answer when Miss Marple has not been consulted. I had had it with her by the end of the story. Oh, yeah. She's, again, again, as we said before, garbage person. Perhaps a garbage person who will get better. Miss Marple, essentially, the story that keeps getting interrupted, um, that she keeps kind of trying to bring up, is a story of Mrs. Hargraves in the village. And Mrs. Hargraves is a lady who, upon her husband's tragic death, finds out that actually her husband left everything to another lady, and they're five children because he had been leading a secret double life the entire time. And so Miss Marvel keeps telling bits of this story and like basically getting told to shut up more or less. Here's the reason she keeps telling that story. The other woman had once been their young chambermaid. So in other words, Miss Lynch killed Mrs. Jones. What? Yeah, except she only did so because Mr. Jones had her do it. Because Mr. Jones is an awful monster person. Mr. Jones gave her a bag of hundreds and thousands that were not made out of sugar, but were in fact made out of arsenic, and she coats the trifle in them. Which is common for trifle to have sprinkles. So, now, Rach, this is a traditional English trifle, isn't it? It sure is. Generally not made of arsenic, however. No. Miss Clark doesn't eat them because she's banting. Mr. Jones scrapes them off. And so only Mrs. Jones happens to consume a massive amount of arsenic. So she dies, 
And then instead of running off with Miss Lynch, who, by the way, Mr. Jones has knocked up, he instead leaves her for another woman. And then Miss Lynch, she has a stillbirth. And then she dies, but not before giving a full confession to Scotland Yard. Right, which Sir Henry Clothering can very conveniently give to us. Right. So Miss Marple solves this not only with the clues that we laid out, but with her knowledge of the ways in which domestic circles are full of betrayal and cruelty and murder. Yeah, and apparently her real distrust of Mr. Jones, because she basically says the second that she heard that there was a young chambermaid in the house, she's immediately, like, suspicious. Raymond West wasn't suspicious for as much as he thinks all people are bad in his supposed novels, but Miss Marple knows what's up. She does. She really does. So this is our, I think, our first episode in which we have discussed a story that does not have an adaptation. And we've done a lot of Poirot, certainly. And one of the reasons that we enjoy so much focusing on them is that we can also watch and then discuss the David Suchet series since they adapted every single Poirot story, both novel and short story. Unfortunately, we do not have that same consistency with Miss Marple, except for two. None of the Miss Marple short stories, and there are 20 of them, have been adapted. All of the novels have been adapted, and we, of course, already covered one of them, but it's going to be a while until we get to the other Miss Marples because Christy didn't really focus on her until later in, in her career. Until she got super sick of Poirot. Of Poirot, then. exactly. <laughs> but we've got some great yeah. Poirots to get through before we get to that point. But that's why we thought it would be fun to discuss a Miss Marple short story now. And I thought it would be interesting just to give a little bit of an overview of Miss Marple on the silver screen through the years because it's not that long of a history, actually. And We've already covered in some detail in our Murder at the Vicarage episode the Joan Hickson BBC adaptations in the 80s and early 90s versus the Agatha Christie's Marple series in the early to mid-aughts with Geraldine McEwen and Julia McKenzie. So we're not going to discuss those because we kind of know that's where Miss Marple ended up. But before then, she had been on the page since 1927 in this story. There were a number of actresses who had brought her to the screen. And just to give a shout-out where a shout-out is due, a lot of this material is actually coming from Mark Aldridge's extremely detailed book, Agatha Christie on Screen, which we have been devouring and loving because he goes into minutia in a way that only a fellow Christie fanatic can appreciate. So <laughs> we just wanted to let you all know that that is a book many of you, I suspect, would be very interested in as well. But the first films where we have Miss Marple actually didn't happen until 30 years after Miss Marple appeared on the page, and that was with Margaret Rutherford. And <laughs> the Margaret Rutherford films are interesting because... Usually when a film is adapted from a novel, there's at least an attempt to make them somewhat faithful to the novels they're adapted from. But from the get-go, the Margaret Rutherford films are really much more about Margaret Rutherford, who was at that point a very famous comedic actress. And there's a lot of comedy and hijinks and physical comedy in those movies in a way that just doesn't exist 
on the page for Miss Marple. Really? You don't say. <laughs> it's just a really light take. In his book, Aldrich writes, it's telling that humor was seen as instrumental to the character of these films. It is difficult to tell from the scripting and production notes whether this was a genuine misunderstanding of the tone of Christie's stories or an attempt to reinvent them. And that's really true. I mean, I it's been a while since I watched those movies, but they're a little bewildering because it's unclear. Like, did someone think, oh, this is a fun way to adapt Christie? Or did they think, ah, screw it. We'll just use the name and do our own thing. You could interpret it either way. It was IP, though. It was IP. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah, there's a reason why they were doing this. I mean, they knew that these were popular novels. Although there are four (laughs) Margaret Rutherford films, and they kept on getting crazier and more and more unlike anything Agatha Christie wrote. The last one being Murder Ahoy, in which Miss Marple (laughs) is essentially wearing an admiral suit on a boat. Welcome aboard, marvelous Margaret Rutherford. Once again as Miss Marple, a busybody detective. In Agatha Christie's newest and maddest mixture of murder and murder. Murder Ahoy! Boy! Boy! On land and on sea, the mercurial Miss Marple ferrets out mysteries almost before they happen. Yes, when Miss Marple goes nautical, it's Murder Ahoy! Excitement storms the high seas on a wacky wild voyage of homicide and hilarity, as only Agatha Christie can mix with such riotous abandon. Cool. (laughs) But Agatha Christie was careful never to criticize Rutherford herself. Privately, she sort of made it known that she did not really love this version of Miss Marple, and she thought that the films were pretty bad, especially when you're comparing them to things like Witness for the Prosecution, which we already discussed and which came out, you know, about 10 years prior to these films. But she was publicly very nice to Rutherford. She even dedicated a late Miss Marple book, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, to Margaret Rutherford, which was very nice of her. So that's kind of Margaret Rutherford. And even though technically those four films are based on parts and pieces of Miss Marple novels, we'll probably mention that when we get to those novels in this podcast. But they're not anything that I think we're going to be reviewing with the fine-toothed comb that we sometimes run through our beloved Suchet series and those Poirot episodes. That's true. The next English language depiction of Ms. Marple was in 1980, so we're jumping ahead about 20 years, and by none other than wait for it, Angela Lansbury... Jessica Fletcher. Well, and that's the little controversial, which I I actually didn't realize until I read Mark Aldrich's book and was doing my research on Miss Marple. But Angela Lansbury appeared in an adaptation of The Mirror Cracked. That's the film version of the book that was dedicated to Margaret Rutherford. And this was quite a star-studded adaptation, too. It featured Rock Hudson, Kim Novak, and Elizabeth Taylor. I've actually never seen this film, but we shall certainly be watching it when we get to this novel. But Lansbury, ironically, didn't quite nail the Marple of it all, apparently, and the film just wasn't as much of a success as everyone thought it would be. Very soon after that is when she began starring in Murder, She Wrote, as Jessica Fletcher, oh which is an All-time ext- favorite. <laughs> one of Catherine's. I mean, Catherine is just fanning herself here. But. Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you writing something new? As a matter of fact, I am. I just started... A new mystery set in the television industry. This little girl sat next to her mother in the early 90s at the tail end of the Murder, She Wrote run and inhaled some Cabot Cove. 
But I feel like it's a little suspicious that Murder, She Wrote came out so soon after this failed Angela Lansbury's Miss Marple film, after which the Christie estate were not so keen on allowing Angela Lansbury and those producers to do more. And they, it seems almost like they were like, okay, well, we'll just steal the idea, change the name slightly, make her American, and see ya. I mean, I will say that the thing about Jessica Fletcher is that Jessica Fletcher is very proactive and active, period. And again, not to say that Miss Marple isn't outside of, obviously, these early short stories, but Jessica Fletcher sort of runs around and, like, hides in places and, like, actively investigates in a way that Miss Marple doesn't. And also Jessica Fletcher is famous. She gets brought into cases more like a Poirot does because she's so well-known. So you're saying that it's not fair to call it a ripoff? Well, I mean, I don't think so, because also it, it takes away one of the best traits about Miss Marple is because people consistently underestimate her. She has the ability to observe unnoticed so much of the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's less the case with Jessica Fletcher, who gets brought in. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, you know, there is the other theory of murder she wrote, which would kind of play into my theory about Miss Marple, though, and that is um, the fact that at a certain point, you have to wonder if, in fact, Jessica Fletcher's a serial killer. Or just has (laughs) some sort of psychic energy. Is she a demon with this energy? She causes people around her to murder? (laughs) Somebody did a study a few years ago, and it was was about the (laughs) most dangerous places on Earth. And it was Cabot Cove. (laughs) And I think from Midsummer Murders, I think that the murder rate there is um, (laughs) really up there. Right, which is, and it's at least, to give Christy her credit, Miss Marple travels a lot for a woman who's not, you know. Jessica Fletcher travels a lot too, but but I mean, I think St. Mary's in Cabot Cove. I know, I know. I think, you know, I think ultimately if there were as many books set in St. Mary Mead, we might have to worry about. St. Mary Mead being a um, murder hotspot, too. <laughs> a hellmouth, if you will. <laughs> a hellmouth, indeed. What I want is to be left alone. Do you really think that's an option anymore? You're standing at the mouth of hell. Then we get to 1983, just a couple years later, and the TV movie. This is back in the days when TV movies had class, a Caribbean mystery. Starring none other than legendary actress Helen Hayes. Mm-hmm. I know. And that one was actually followed up. So it was a twofer of Helen Hayes as Miss Marple. And she was actually, by the way, extremely old in this moment. I believe she was in her mid-80s herself. I think she was born around 1900. So that one was followed up with Murder with Mirrors in 1985. Starring Helen Hayes and... Speaking of rather aged actresses of this time, Betty Davis as Miss Marple's best friend, Carrie Saracold. And I actually very much remember Murder with Mirrors, the novel. I did not watch this adaptation, and I cannot wait to, but sadly, it seems that one of the only things people remember from it is how ill and old Betty Davis looked. And then after that is when we got to Joan Hickson, our beloved Joan Hickson in the BBC, and then after that, our less beloved aughts versions of Miss Marple. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. As we said, the only... I don't know. Murder Ahoy sounds like a gem. (laughs) 
<laughs> Only two of the short stories adapted in the aughts. When we do get to those stories, we will certainly cover those adaptations. But spoiler, they're terrible. I find it very odd that in the aughts adaptations, they fit Miss Marple into non-Miss Marple stories to adapt. When there were Miss Marple did... short stories they weren't using. Uh-huh. Yeah, I totally agree. Correct. I don't understand what was going on with that either. Which is an odd choice. Lots of odd choices were made in those adaptations. So that is our discussion of our very first Miss Marple short story, The Tuesday Night Club. And we are going to be discussing the second within the Tuesday Night Club series next week. It's a little confusing because the collection itself is called The Tuesday Club Murders, but then this first short story was called The Tuesday Night Club. It's also alternately titled The 13 Problems as a collection, so you'll come across that. In any case, now that we've gotten past this first one, which has a similar title to the collection, it'll be less confusing. That next story that we will be discussing is The Idle House of a Start. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter at All About the Dame. You can check out Catherine at Brobcat. You can also visit us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And we are on Instagram at All About the Dame. And we so very much look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.